Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. In 2015, the General Assembly passed a new law that placed significant limits on the use of restraint and seclusion in Connecticut schools. Today, a check-in on how public schools are doing in the treatment and education of children with developmental disabilities. We'll sit down with the Office of Child Advocate, who fields calls from parents of kids with special needs and can investigate everything from the use of restraint and seclusion to a lack of specialized treatment options for these students. We'll also hear from a mother who's been advocating for her autistic son since he was 15 months old. We want to hear from you. Are you a parent of a child with developmental disabilities? What has been your experience in the public school system? Are you an educator who works with special needs students? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome in studio with us uh, Sarah Egan, Connecticut's child advocate. So good to see you again, Sarah. And thanks for having us. So it's been a year, it's been almost a year since that law, or a little less than a year since the new law that uh, places significant restrictions on restraint and seclusion. So it's a good time to to check in and see what your office has been seeing in terms of uh, children in the system with uh, special education needs. No, I think so. I think, you know, the new law is it was a great development, um, and I think uh, was the latest reform effort by Connecticut that started to collect data on how often kids were restrained and secluded um, going back to 2012. And I think the law was really a response to a growing sense of alarm that uh, we were seeing year in, year out, upwards of 30,000, 35,000, 37,000 incidents of children with disabilities who are restrained or secluded in schools. Um, and as you talked about before, the largest uh, cohort of kids who are subject to restraint and seclusion are children with developmental disabilities. Almost half of the kids who have been restrained or secluded in schools are kids with developmental disabilities, including autism. Um, and that tells us we have a problem. Um, we have a problem with, um, you know, with supporting kids, skillfully working with kids who have complex disabilities, um, and we needed to start moving in the direction of reform um, and changes for those kids. And, and so, so first I'd want to say that the law is a really good development and a recognition that restraint and seclusion are harmful to children. Um, restraint can lead to injury for children and adults. Um, seclusion and restraint are, uh, are traumatizing um, and not helpful. And, and there's no evidence to support the notion that they are helpful in reducing problem behavior. And in fact, the research shows just the opposite, that they are what's called iatrogenic, meaning they worsen the behaviors they are trying to address. Um, and given the dangerousness, the traumatizing nature of these interventions, um, you know, and the, the rate at which we were seeing their utilization in Connecticut, um, you, you know, it was really time for a, what I would call call to action. And so um, tell us about the activity that you're seeing um, with the calls you're getting from parents. And, um, you know, again, you said this was a great uh, latest reform for uh, re- 
keeping restraint and seclusion from happening, right? Right. But you're not seeing, you're still seeing an uptick in, in calls and complaints? So that's the interesting thing, right? So, of course, you change the law. It doesn't change practice mm-hmm. overnight. Um, so while there's been some activities uh, on the parts of various state partners to uh, continue to draw attention to the need to reduce restraint and seclusion, um, our office has seen an uptick in calls. Now, part of that is because people hear us talking, like mm-hmm. on your show or talking on the, at the legislature, and they say, oh, I have this problem. I'm I'm going to call the Child Advocates Office. So some of that is is a response to, you know, hearing the issue talked about and parents who might otherwise have struggled in silence um, now feel like they have a place to call. But uh, you're right, Lucy. We do see, I think that I, I said to you several weeks ago, that we are up to our eyeballs in um, – in calls from parents, professionals um, who are concerned about a child who has special needs and who is not getting those needs met. Um, sometimes that manifests itself in, in, in terms of you know restrictive interventions like restraint, seclusion, suspension, um, even arrests as kids get older. Some of that starts to turn into, into those types of um, interventions. Um, and, you know, I... I when we look at our in just our intakes over the last year, uh, we have seen at least over a hundred intakes uh, calls for help that involve a family that has a child with a developmental disability, um, and that that is a very significant phenomenon. Um, I can tell you right now that we have um, open cases um, where children as young as five are being restrained and secluded, and. I mean, it's it is heartbreaking. It is shocking. It needs urgent uh, attention, and I think it's telling us that schools need help. Um, so, is the problem better yet? It's not better yet. It's not what it is now. Is I think being talked about more. Um, it is you know we're moving in a in a direction that sets the stage for change, but we don't have change yet. Not yet. When we talk about the practice of restraint and seclusion for people um, unfamiliar with this practice and how it's used and why, can you can you talk about that? Explain that for us. So what the Connecticut law says, and I think it's important for people to know, is that restraint and seclusion are not permitted for, for any person unless they're a danger to themselves or others, right? These are emergency interventions, whether it's a you know, an adult in a mental health facility or a child in a school. For a long time, for kids in school with disabilities, there was this, you know, gaping, yawning exception that said, for everybody else, restraint and seclusion is an emergency intervention, unless you're a child with a disability, in which case we can just sort of write it into your school plan, um, which was a travesty because that allowed for thousands of incidents of seclusion. So you can't write restraint into an education plan. But thousands of incidents of seclusion each year um, for non-emergency behaviors. Um, and that just flies in the face of everything that we know about the harmfulness of these interventions, the traumatizing nature of them, and the lack of therapeutic effectiveness. So I think, you know, going back 2012 to 2014, we had anywhere between 10 and 18,000 non-emergency interventions a year for behaviors that we would characterize as problematic, disruptive, but also keep in mind that the majority of uh, the, of these interventions are being used for elementary school age students, you know. So one, our office um, engaged in an investigation into the specifics of these practices 
I mean, somewhere over the last two years, and issued a public report early last year. And one of the reasons we wanted to look into it is to see what are exactly, what are the circumstances? Everybody says, well, it's an emergency and we have to be able to respond. Well, I think we were skeptical of that. You know, what do these emergencies actually look like? Well, I think part of what we were alarmed to see is that most of the time you can't even tell. So even though there's documentation requirements around what leads to the need for restraint and seclusion, a lot of times I'm just looking at a form letter mm-hmm. that checks off, you know, whatever disruptive, aggressive. Uh, I'll look at a child who had 40 incidents of restraint and seclusion, and every single form was exactly the same, which is problematic because I don't know what the emergency was. I don't know if there was an emergency. I don't know what's changing from incident to incident. If somebody's coming into that team, they have no way of looking at that child's behavior over time to see how to help her. Um, And then other times where we did see documentation, we saw concerning uses for, and we're talking little kids, you know, running running out of the classroom or hiding under the desk or twirling their coat around. Um, On the non, really, really, really non-emergency side, you know, we saw restraints, we saw seclusion being used for kids who are just non-compliant. You know, little kids who say, didn't put the toy away. Little kid who didn't put a seatbelt on when he got into the van. And was walked right back into the school and put into a seclusion room as part of his behavior intervention plan. Um, and I think we have to keep in mind, and I can't say it enough, that the best minds in the country working on this are our leading mental health folks, our leading experts in developmental disabilities. They all say the same refrain. You will hear it wherever you go where people are talking about this. Restraint equals treatment failure. It's not a therapeutic intervention. It tells us something else is a problem for this child um, and that they need different types of help. We're talking today about seclusion and restraint in public schools, as well as just in general, special education services. Sarah Egan is Connecticut's child advocate. And if you are a family member of someone with developmental disabilities or you work with this population in schools, we want to hear from your, about your experience. Call 860-275-7266 to join the conversation. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. I wanted to talk more about um, this new law that was passed last year. Um, We did reach out to several different organizations that represent school administrators, school board, um, and we didn't hear even we didn't hear that they were able to join us today uh, for this conversation. But can we balance? How do we balance the um, the concerns that you're raising with um, school administrators, teachers, principals? Um, having to ensure um, safety concerns in the classroom if a child with a developmental disability um, starts to act out in a way that is in danger to themselves and maybe to the the staff or to other kids. And so how do schools balance that? I think it's a great question, right? Well, first, schools have to have the schools, and I mean the people in the classroom, the teachers, special ed case managers, the folks working with kids and families, they have to have the tools at their disposal. They have to have time. They have to be able to work with kids. Um, You have to be able to bring the resources to bear to have appropriate education plans, individualized plans, to support children in all areas of development. Because what I'll hear back is, well, what am I supposed to do when this child's, you know, doing X, Y, or Z? Well, I I get that. I hear that, right? And we don't want a child to hurt themselves or others, right? No no question. But any child who is engaging in – um, the it challenging behaviors, be they extremely disruptive or behaviors you could fairly characterize as dangerous, you know, that's telling us that, um, you know, the minute those types of behaviors are happening are telling us, boy, we have some work to do, right? And in order to do that work, 
um, teachers and administrators need to have appropriate resources and support. So when I go into a district, like right now we're looking at a school district where we had a lot of complaints about um, uh, pr- provision of services to kids with developmental disabilities. Um, you know, and, and we, we pull all the education records there. And, and let me start by saying that everybody working with those kids is very well-intended. You know, teachers are there because they care and they want to support kids, no question. But none of these kids had the, that we looked at had the level of intervention that is consistent with national best practices for kids with developmental disabilities. None. I've seen an acronym, PBIS. Can you talk about that as a, as a level of intervention before that behavior happens? So, so that is uh, not specific. That's, that's positive behavior interventions and supports. And that is a PBIS is an evidence-based framework for reducing problem behavior, uh, improving school climate, um, preventing, um, preventing and responding to problem behavior. It's not specific to kids with developmental disabilities or even specific to kids with disabilities. Um, but it's a, it does um, support school-wide efforts to reduce problem behaviors across the school and does create a framework for um, increasing individualization for children who have more complex needs. Um, and there are a lot of folks in Connecticut who are... Uh, um, uh, very seasoned and knowledgeable about PBIS, and there are a lot of uh, schools who are st- starting to in- uh, implement those types of interventions and frameworks. I think when we're talking about kids who have complex disabilities, where we run into is that I think a lot of schools really struggle in having the capacity, the expertise, the time, and the resources to do what they want to be able to do for children with complex needs and from the earliest age. So what happens is that kids at three, four, five um, are not getting the, are often, like I say always, I'm sure there are places doing fabulous jobs. I tend not to hear about those places in our job, but in our role. But um, but we'll see kids, you know, very young who are, are not getting anywhere close to what they need, which means the teacher is not getting the support that they need to work with the child. And it, that can only continue for so long. And then as children age 9, 10, 11, 12, and we have a child with complex disabilities who um, doesn't have communication skills, um, can't communicate when they're frustrated, when they're agitated, doesn't have self-soothing skills, um, you know, just has not received what they needed to um, to, to improve their own skill set, um, then now, now we're going to start to see more significant problems, and we're going to start to have uh, emergencies all the time. But it really starts with um, how do we support children and their caregivers and their teachers and their parents early on so that children can be supported in all areas of development? We received a couple of tweets. Uh, one of the tweets, I have friends and family who work exclusively with autistic children. They are regularly harmed by some of their students. Those same students often hurt themselves. Putting more limits on these restraints will lead to more injuries for everyone, including other kids. How do you respond to that? Well, I think that's a really important concern um, that, that folks have. So I've responded two ways. One is that, um, that research is very clear that it is programs and facilities that rely on restraint that have a higher rate of staff injury. 
And I know that sounds counterintuitive because we think we're using restraint to reduce the likelihood of injury. But in fact, the research shows that it does exactly the opposite. And that's true of mental health programs and facilities. And there's lots of data over the last two decades to confirm that. So facilities and programs that have a reliance on restraint and seclusion have higher staff turnover rates, higher staff injury rates, um, and, and, and less positive outcomes, right, because we're focused on responding to um, the crisis that, that that is being presented instead of preventing the crises from from happening and reducing the occurrence of crises and finding other ways to support and manage. So I think that the the tweet is is uh, you know I want to validate that concern. Uh, we don't want people to hurt themselves and others. And I'm not saying we'll live in a world where restraint is never needed um, to prevent. But what we have to think about what, are, and again, you know, I had a colleague say to me, what, what is the teacher supposed to do when a child's banging their head against the wall? Well, yes, we're going to have, we want to stop the child from banging their head, no question. But what we want to be asking is sitting down with the family, the teachers, any other community providers working with the family and saying, you know, what's leading to all of this head banging? What's leading to some of these aggressive behaviors? There's no other way to to reduce that and to reduce the need for the emergency interventions than to do that. Um, you know, so you know, so I guess that's that, that that's my response to that. And we need to do a much, much better job of, you know, we can't just say to schools, okay, here's this child with complex needs, you fix him. Right? Because that's not really an answer. Any of the kids that we're talking about um, have families that need help. They need supports in the communities, as you know, we've been talking about in preparation for the show. Can't talk about schools in isolation from what families need and what's available in the community. Um, and, you know, we went to a meeting last week for a kid with complex needs, and there were seven agencies at the table, right, all rolling up their sleeves trying to figure out how to help this child and this family, right? Now, none of the care was coordinated. Nobody's working with each other, Right. Um, and and that's a real problem. You know, we can't take a shotgun approach to working with kids with complex needs. To do that is really to, um, uh, you know, to not get very much done effectively. That almost never works. Um, so, you know, when you have a kid with very complex needs in school, chances are you're talking about a family that needs a lot of support. When you have a child with challenging behaviors in school, we should be thinking to ourselves, what does that family need? How is that family coping? Who's, help, who's helping them manage when they're at home? Um, I can tell you a, another really important finding that we've made as we looked at educational records around the state as part of various investigations. Okay? Federal law requires that individualized education plans have what's called parent training components. When that's needed to help the child make progress with their goals and objectives, right? In our restraint and seclusion investigation, we looked at 70 IEPs from various programs. I can tell you not a single plan had a parent training component. And in the last year, probably having looked at hundreds of IEPs around the state, we have seen one that talked about parent training, that talked about what the parent needs. And that's just never going to work that way. If we're not, if we are not even in schools um, talking about care coordination, talking about what families need, um, you know, no one system can support a child who has complex needs on their own, not well. We're talking about special education in schools and the use of restraint and seclusion. Sarah Egan is with us. She's Connecticut's child advocate. When we come back from our break, we'll talk with the mother of a teenager with autism who's been advocating for him for nearly 20 years. This is where we live. 
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're exploring how kids with developmental disabilities are served in the public school system. Can students receive the right treatment and education plans in their home district? Or is it more common to send these students out of district, which has disadvantages for both the families and the schools? In studio with me is Sarah Egan. She's Connecticut's child advocate. And I wanted to bring into the conversation now uh, Angela Klonowski. She's the mother of a 19-year-old with autism. Angela, thank you for joining Where We Live. Thank you for having me. So tell me about your journey with your son when he was first diagnosed with autism. Um, my son, Connor, Connor um, was diagnosed when he was 15 months old, and we went through the birth to three system. Then we went to pre-K in our local public school um, where they really couldn't manage him as far as his behaviors at the time. So between the ages of three and six, when he was in our local public school, he was restrained on several occasions. And then at um, the next PPT that we had, when he was six, we decided that it was time for him to go to a specialized school where he could get all the services and supports that he needed. However, sending him out of district, which I thought was a good t- thing at the time because the district couldn't handle him where we were, he was still restrained at that school as well. Can you talk about the um, situation involving when they decided that they needed to restrain him? I mean, it would be over little things. Just because he was so young, um, between the ages of three and six, he could steal maybe someone's Cheeto from them, or maybe he wasn't playing with the paint appropriately because he wasn't taught to do so. Um, I mean, there was just a gamut of just non-emergency reasons why he would go into restraint, being restrained. Um, Same thing when he went to the specialized school in Hartford. Um, Between the ages of six and nine, they were always restraining him. And it wasn't because he was a bad kid. It was because he wasn't taught what he needed to in order to do the right thing all the time. Um, Kids with disabilities, you know, don't learn at the same rate as uh, non-disabled kids. And sometimes they need the extra attention and the extra um, patience from people so they actually learn it and retain it. And so... um we were talking about the importance of uh, parent training and support with Sarah Egan in the last uh, the last segment. Where did you go to get your support? How did you learn to navigate the system and advocate for your son? Um, thank goodness for the Internet because that's where I got my education regarding advocacy. Um, I sought out other parents. I tried to get hooked up with different support groups online mainly because I really didn't have the time to do anything outside of the home because of him. Um, and... I just learned as I went, and I just advocated because the only way you get things for your kids in this state or probably any other state is by being the squeaky wheel. Now, did you have have a career before um, your son was diagnosed with autism, and how did that change, um, you know, your ability to work from home? Um, When he was originally diagnosed, I opened up my own daycare in my home. So I did that for six years just because I also have four, four kids in total. Um, And then after that, um, I got into the working world. I worked at the school in Hartford where he attended because I was scared as a mom to just send him out to Hartford and and not know what was going on in his day because he's nonverbal also. Um, So I worked there for three years, and then um, I got a job with the state of Connecticut. And then I left that in 2010 because once he went through puberty, all these different behaviors and medical conditions started showing up. So now he's diagnosed with epilepsy on top of his autism. 
Sarah's, um, you're nodding your head in agreement. Is this a, a common story for families with children that, that have that are diagnosed with autism and they have to figure out, um, you know, how they can respond and be advocates while also balancing their other home and, and life responsibilities? I think that's, boy, I mean, everything that um, Angela's talking about um, is, is, I think, unfortunately really common. And I think that there 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 is some support out there, but I think a lot of parents feel very alone they feel that they don't know where the help is. Um, they are scared, um, you know, and, and thinking, you know, what Angela's talking about reminds me of how important it is that parents have confidence sending their child. All, all parents need to have confidence when they're sending their child out into the world that they're going to be nurtured, that they're going to be cared for, that they're going to receive what they need. Uh, you add on top of that a child who doesn't speak, who can't report to you how their day is, who... Um, you know, has has very you know challenging uh, disabilities. You know, and the the strain for um, families to to work, to be the advocate, to be present everywhere, to uh, make sure that their child gets everything they need. Uh, you know, it is a heartbreaking, um, exhausting struggle. And I think that you know one of the things our system really has to get better at is recognizing we cannot look at children in isolation. We have to be thinking about, we have to do a better job of supporting parents. And not just in terms of like what clinical supports can we put in the home or the school. But, you know, there is a lot of support that's really effective that's not about putting a therapist in the home, but about, um, you know, what our system really needs to do better is, you know, being able to appreciate the need for, um, you know, maintenance support for parents, for siblings, um, in-home supports that are not necessarily clinical, that might be about answering questions, helping to provide advocacy, uh, providing some respite, providing high-skilled babysitting opportunities. Because, you know, w- what can happen, you know, o- over a decade and a half of, um, you know, a story like Angela's is families crash and burn. And we see that all the time. And when families crash and burn, systems crash and burn. And, you know, we, we've got to halt that trajectory. And, and what the last comment I just wanted to make is, um, you know, is that our, our, our look, our, our systems are filled with people, teachers and therapists and doctors, all who want to help. Um, and I think we still struggle as a system working effectively with kids with developmental disabilities. And what can happen over time is, when, when the system is not as successful as it wants to be in changing a child's behavior, then, then it starts to shift, and we start to blame the child. We start to blame the family, and then things really go bad. Angela, has that been in your experience as Connor has gotten older? Um, he's more challenging just because he's bigger. I mean, we're talking about a five foot eight young man who's 247 pounds. So when he wants what he wants and he doesn't get it, it can be challenging at school and at home and especially in the community. Um, but we're still trying to work through it. We're still going through a gamut of different medications for him because we can see that he doesn't want to hurt himself. He doesn't want to be aggressive towards others. But it's just getting to the bottom of the line as where is this coming from? What are the triggers? And so far between doctors, neurologists, um, you know, he's going to a psychiatrist right now. They haven't found the right meds for him. 
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about how the public school system responds to children with developmental disabilities. In studio with me is Connecticut's child advocate, Sarah Egan, and Angela Klonoski, a mother of a 19-year-old with autism. We got another tweet from Zach. I was happy working a full year as a paraprofessional at my local public high school. I had to leave because the pay was nada. Is that a common a common uh, complaint about people who might have the passion, but the resources to pay them are are lacking? It is because you have to have the training, you have to have patience, and you have to be willing to take whatever is given to you when you work with that child. I mean, you do get hurt. You can get hurt. It's It's one of the parts of the job. I mean, I worked for a school with kids with disabilities for three years. I I had my bumps and bruises over the years when I was there. But it's not the child's fault. And, you know, if the proper supports are put in place, that shouldn't happen. But you have to look at the child individually and see what that child needs to be productive, to be, you know, succeed at that school. And, I mean, it's sensory issues, OTPT speech, you know, a BCBA to do the behaviors and do a behavior intervention plan, which you can use in all areas, at home, at school, in the community. And if these kids don't have what they need, they're not going to be successful, which means that they're not going to be su- successful adults either. So what, did, what happened to Connor? Um, did he bounce from one school to the next until you found a right fit? And, and what's working now at 19? Um, we left the public. We moved four years ago to Bristol. Um, we tried the public school out there. It was not successful for Connor. So now he's at Melora Academy in Meriden, where he is doing really well. They understand kids with autism. They, that's their focus, kids with autism and developmental disabilities, and they're doing a good job. Um, it's really rare to find that fit, and he's going on the second year there, which he has been successful, which is a plus. But you live in Bristol. You pay taxes in Bristol. Do you wish that your son could get the right services in your Bristol local school? Yes, I do. And I pushed for that the first year we were there. And after I saw what Connor was going through and his needs were not being met, I said it's time to, you know, let's go out of the district and go somewhere else. Um, The other thing I want to also talk about, and Sarah touched on about the school personnel and everybody who works with the child, but we've also had um, problems with with Connor in the in the well recently also, um, but in the past, bus drivers, aides on the buses um, or the vans, any type of transportation, because these kids are driving or they're on the van for up to an hour or if not longer. Sometimes they're stuck in traffic. The there's no training that happens for bus drivers, for the aides on the bus, because almost all the transportation is contracted out to different vendors. So that's not one of the requirements. And it's really scary. If you put a child on, on the van or bus and they're not willing to wear their seatbelt, which my son won't, or they have an outburst or start hitting themselves, which Connor does, they don't know what to do. Sometimes they just pull over, which is really scary to a child who's nonverbal and doesn't understand what's going on. Sarah, is it easier for, for some school districts, um, in your experience and hearing from parents and then looking at these uh, individualized education plans, is it easier for some schools to just write the check and send this child to another, um, another school, another specialized program because yes. they don't have the resources? And then how yes. do we fix that? 
So I think the short answer to that is yes, sometimes. Um, I think that, you know, the practice is really going to run the gamut. I think there are districts who work very hard to have a continuum of educational supports in district for kids with disabilities, which they're required to by federal and state law. Um, And there are districts who do a pretty good job with that, and there are districts who do a very poor job with that. Um, I can tell you that there are obviously, as Angela's talking about, lots of pros and cons to what we call outplacing kids. Um, you know, one is that it's extremely expensive uh, for for towns. Um, you know, just from the public policy standpoint, it's very expensive. Um, you know, there are towns that are spending millions and millions and millions of dollars um, sending kids out of the district when maybe those monies could be spent um, building a stronger continuum um, for their teachers and uh, and kids in the district. Um, two, you know, the quality of, of private placements really varies, right? So that's number – and then three, and, and maybe the most important, most important point is that kids have – uh, a, a civil right to to be in their communities, to not be segregated, to not have to be in special schools. And that's not an aspersion on any program. The program counters, there's some of these programs are great. They're terrific. They're meeting a need. But, but the reason we have integration requirements is because forever people, persons with disabilities were segregated. You know, you don't belong. You don't get to be seen. You know, 25 years ago, if you had Down syndrome, you weren't in school with, with other, other people's children. And we saw how terrible that is. Um, and a lot of kids with even significant disabilities will do better in integrated classrooms, and the data supports that. So I think that, look, I just want to emphasize, you know, no special education teacher, no no paraprofessional is going to school saying, I don't want to be a great help to kids today. They do. I know they do. You know, these teachers leave their blood, sweat, and tears in the classroom. But what do we put on their shoulders? I want to really emphasize that there are supports and answers out there that are effective. But when I look at dozens and dozens and dozens of IEPs for kids with complex disabilities around the state, and I see no OT support. I see no BCBA support written into the IEP. I may see no individual behavior plans or behavior analyses, which are also required by law. I see no convenings with parents. I see um, no appropriate data collection. Um, so I don't want to suggest that a practice is perfect and somehow there's just something wrong with these kids that they don't improve. You know, the the degree of expertise and resources that we are bringing to bear for some of these kids is not adequate. Um, and I think we have to rethink, um, you know, how we're supporting districts to program for kids. And then when they wind up out, outplacing kids because they, they, they sort of, you know, don't know what to do in district, they're just spending more money. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I wanted to get some national perspective now on how the public school system responds to children with developmental disabilities. We're joined now by Ron Hager. He's the senior staff attorney for education at the National Disability Rights Network. Ron, welcome to where we live. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Ron, it's 2016. What are some areas of concern for treating and educating students with special needs in our public schools? Well, uh, I can just echo what Sarah, was it Sarah that was just talking? Yes. I can just echo what Sarah was talking, what she's uh, mentioning in uh, Connecticut. Her experience there is, is definitely true across the country. What we really see still after all these years of the uh, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act idea being enforced, that we still see school districts struggling with meeting the needs of students with significant behavioral uh, disabilities. Um still see overuse of discipline, uh, suspension, 
control the law enforcement, use of restraint and seclusion, uh, instead of really looking at why the student is, uh, what is the cause of the behavior, and really coming up with an effective plan to reduce the behavior. We know that when students misbehave, they're communicating something. And uh, a good plan, uh, Sarah mentioned that with functional behavior assessment, you know, you really want to try and look at the underlying antecedents to the behavior, what's going on in the classroom, what's going on in the student's life outside of school, all the things that might bring to bear that might be reasons why the student's misbehaving. And then a good behavioral intervention plan should be really designed based on the individual student to, re to take steps to reduce the behavior. And the other thing that we found is uh, research has shown that positive approaches uh, are much more effective uh, than negative approaches. And so what's happening in Connecticut is happening across the country. The, the staff and the schools don't really have the training they need. Um, the approaches that are taken all too often are not individualized. They're more one uh, size fits all. So uh, we're seeing this across the country. And why is that? Is it because of is there a lack of resources for these schools to have the proper training? Um, I'm just curious of why this is a continued problem. Well, I think it could be a couple of things. Certainly, resources does have a a, a, a role in this. Uh, you know, to really take the time to sit down and individualize for a student. You know, it, time is money. It takes staffing. It takes bringing in maybe an expert to come in to look at the student in the environment to develop the plan. Um, so resources is definitely a concern. But as Sarah said, it's also the way our our system has been configured. You know, before the laws uh, came into effect, uh, a number of states did have programs pre-existing for students with disabilities, tended to be segregated programs. And so you had a model, a delivery model of, uh, of a segregated uh, approach. And even with the law passing and requiring students at being educated in their uh, class, regular classrooms, regular schools, with supports, uh, that, that model continued to persist and still persists. So you're spending the money many times for these students, but you're spending it in out of school, uh, out of, you know, the neighborhood school placements that cost a lot of money. So part of it is taking the resources we already have and reconfiguring our delivery system to provide the supports to the uh, teachers in the school, to provide the supports to the staff uh, and the resources to the student instead of just placing the student out. Ron, the hour is slipping away from us, but before you go, I wanted to find out, you know, what states are really doing a good job at, um, you know, educating their public schools and, and parents and community services on the proper way to respond to children with developmental disabilities? You know, that's a good question. I wish I had the answer, um, because even in states that are resource-rich, um, we see a lot of problems still. Uh, I think it's more district by district where School districts are taking a serious look at what they're doing, how they're doing, uh, what they're working on with the students, and um, and uh, and reducing you know inappropriate uses of discipline. Uh, I can't really give you a, a you know, clear answer to that, unfortunately. Um, but Connecticut is, but not by far the the best or the worst. Well, I guess that's. Good news. Ron Hager. Yeah. Ron Hager, thank you. Senior Staff Attorney for Education at the National Disability Rights Network. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll speak about more proactive ways to work with children who have developmental disabilities. We have a few calls on the line. Please stay with us.
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up on Monday's show, should Connecticut mandate paid family and medical leave? We'll find out from a local lawmaker and paid leave advocate what happened to that legislation before the General Assembly. We'll also find out why some parents are using crowdfunding to support their unpaid leave to take care of their children. And we'll meet the author of A Bun in the Oven. It's a new book with some novel ideas about the food and birth movements. Today, where we live, we're talking about special education and checking in on the controversial practice of seclusion and restraint. In studio with me is Sarah Egan, Connecticut's child advocate, and Angela Klonoski, a mother of a 19-year-old with autism. I want to take a couple of calls now. Uh, Nichelle is calling from Ledger. Nichelle, welcome to where we live. Thank you. Um, I'm glad you guys are bringing this topic up. I I have a 22-year-old autistic uh, PDD NOS um, young adult, and then I also have a 16-year-old high school at Ledger High, and the oldest one was restrained uh, once, and um, we had to have uh, a big meeting, and we talked about restraints with him. The youngest son, I was blessed, um, he never had to be restrained. Um, the team that he has is just wonderful. But talking about what Sarah brought up on parents um, learning the roadway of autism in the school system and um, social services and stuff, I was also the parent co-chair of our local system of care, which sits different collaboratives of providers of children's mental health um, that sits the table. And a lot of parents and families don't know about it and aren't able to come to the table. So the Internet is one way, but we also are parents that wear many hats because we're caseworkers. We're dealing with the insurance. We're dealing with the schools. We also work 40-hour job. Um, I also work in the field working with dis- disabled uh, adults, um, we're exhausted by the end of the day. So um, when we bring them, we send our children to school, we think it's going to be a safe environment for them, and we do everything that we possibly can to set up a plan of action and education. And it's just frustrating for us to get the phone calls from the school systems and saying that your child's out of control, come and get them. And I had that once, and I kind of pushed it back to school and said, no, you guys are the trained professionals. I'm just a mom. Mm -hmm. And that's when he was very young in in early childhood. So I have learned a lot on my journey, and I, again, thank you for bringing this topic to um, the public. Well, thank you, Nichelle, for um, speaking uh, to where we live. And Angela, the mother of the 19-year-old autistic son, you are nodding your head because you remember, and you probably still get those calls. Um, how do you respond um, when you know you find out that your child um, is having these behaviors, and you're worried about you know the right interventions being used? Um, the school that he's cur- that Connor's currently going to right now, um, I had talked to the BCBA, and I. You know, I told her that I wanted to be called when he's having a rough day or he's being aggressive or he has too many head hits. Um, it's good information for me. I, I need to know how his day is or if it's productive for him to stay at school or come home. Right now, because of all the different med- medicine changes that he's currently going through, um, my first response is to go pick him up. But in the past, in the public school system, I was getting the calls all the time because they didn't have the training. They didn't know how to handle him. And, you know, they really, you know, 
whether they loved their job or not, they really didn't want him at school. And so that would that's the reason why I don't work is because um, I never know when I'm going to get that phone call. And you've told me uh, before the show that you get a lot of calls from parents like, say, Michelle, where they're looking for that support and you're kind of this informal network. Um, I, just because I've been an advocate and I've you know, given trainings around the state when I worked at my job with the state of Connecticut, so many parents have gotten my phone number, they're my email that has never changed. And every once in a while, I'll just get an email or a phone call from somebody and said, you know, are you still advocating? Can you help? Um, can you refer me to somebody? And, you know, to me, that's a compliment. And it's great that they remembered me. Um, but that's the only resource that parents really have is each other. Um, because we're the only ones who live it on a daily basis, and we know what each other is going through, whether it's the school system, the, um, the medical system, or the judicial, you know, when it comes to, you know, assault charges and other things that are happening to our kids. John, I want to take your call from Greenwich. You're on Where We Live. Hi, um, my name's John. I uh, have a son with Angelman. Hello? Yes, we're here, John. Go yeah, ahead. Okay. I have a son with Angelman syndrome. Uh, this is a uh, genetic condition that uh, results in severe mental retardation, motor control issues, seizures, um, but also an incredibly happy disposition. He won a best smile in the school. He's currently going to a special school. And I first wanted to agree with the last call on that. Parent support groups are the way, he's seven years old now, by the way, uh, are the best way for us so far for us to receive the information, all of the tips, all of the um, information that helped us navigate the various systems. I want to say that first. But I, I also want to say that our son is doing so great in a special school out of district. This is a school actually in New York, um, in Poughkeepsie. He goes quite a ways to get there. And uh, we know it's the right place for him. And we know that our school district cannot accommodate him. There are very special needs, special equipment, special personnel. We are very happy with the school, the Cardinal Hayes School in Poughkeepsie. And um, that's not to say that Connecticut does not have great schools along the same lines. In fact, we've heard that Connecticut has not only great schools, but a great state system for special education. And we are looking at uh, moving to Connecticut at some point. Uh, we're right on the border right now, just on the New York side, but we'd like to be in the Connecticut system. Well, so I just want to let you know that Connecticut is, from what we've heard from all of our parents, other parents with uh, children with medical conditions, that Connecticut is a good place. I also have a, a family member who is a teacher in Connecticut who, who has told me some information. So, well, Thank you, yeah. John. We're a little short on time. I thank you for calling yep. where we live and sharing your story, and good luck with the move. Sure. I just wanted to add, we have uh, an Angelman Syndrome Foundation walk tomorrow in Manchester at okay. Wickham Park at 930. All right. Um, anyone who knows anyone, it's, it's going to be a great gathering. You can learn more about Angelman Syndrome. All Thanks. right. Thank you so much, John, for your call. And I wanted to uh, refer this to you now, Sarah. The Hour in Norwalk reported uh, that three Norwalk mothers told the Board of Education this week that their children's school is using restraints and seclusion, but this is a private school. So I'm wondering how are regulations or treatment plans different in private schools compared to our public school system? Well, first, if it's a private special education program, it's going to be governed by um, 
all all of the the regulations that govern public schools also govern the provision of services in state accredited private programs, right? Um, but in any program where a child is going to school, they have the right to be free from harm and they have the right to appropriate. Um, support. Um, so any concerns like that, you know, should be brought to light. And if anybody has a question about that, they can always call our office. Can I make one last point? I yes, know sir. we're right out of time, which is um, the, the one word we haven't used today is trauma. And I just couldn't let the show end without that, which is that the rate of traumatic experience in children and adults who have disabilities, particularly developmental disabilities, is very high. Some of that comes from having experienced physical or emotional harm, and some of it comes from being a person with disabilities in a world that struggles to respond to them. So that any, um, you know, the, the types of effective behavior intervention plans that a lot of the callers and people are speaking about today, really, really important, essential that they be understood through a trauma-informed lens. Uh, that's another area of, of systemic work that we, we have to start getting a lot more used to. Uh, but I just couldn't let the show end without saying that. And before we close, uh, obviously your office is getting lots of complaints, cases that you've opened investigating. If parents are listening now and they need help, we've got two minutes, what can you tell them? So the Office of the Child Advocate is charged by state law with um, evaluating and reporting regarding publicly funded systems that serve children. Obviously, we've historically had a focus and a legislative charge to look at our most vulnerable children, children involved with state systems, children in state custody, and children with special needs. So we both do systemic investigations and individual support. We are a small office, so we can't, um, you know, always go everywhere we're needed. But anybody that has a question or a concern can always call the Office of the Child Advocate at 860-566-2106, and someone will speak with you um, and try to refer you in the right direction, um, or if needed, um, we will try to do some advocacy for you. So uh, that's what we're here for, um, so please feel free to call. Thank you so much to Connecticut's child advocate, Sarah Egan. Also to Angela Klonoski, a mother of a 19-year-old, Connor, who has autism. I understand another child of yours has a birthday today. Happy birthday to him. Thank you. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. And I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>